The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So, if you're new with us, we are all we are doing a series right now called Mythbusters. Now, as many of you may know, normally what we would be doing here at Heritage Christian Fellowship is we walk through a particular passage or a particular text. Uh, for example, we just finished the book of Luke a few weeks ago. Uh, right now we're doing a little summer series, just jumping out while we're actually launching a church in Grants Pass that Pastor Sam will be the lead pastor of called Philippi. That church will launch in September. And then in September, on September 15th, we, as well as Philippi and Grants Pass, will start a new book of the Bible and we'll begin studying the book of Acts all together as we move forward through that. So in the meantime, while we're getting the church church off the ground, and we just finished this one book, we were trying to think of like, so what should we be doing maybe this summer? And we've chosen to do a series called Mythbusters. And so the idea here is this, there are many commonly held misconceptions or untruths that people both inside the church and outside the church often carry. Sometimes, like I said, there's, there's things that people outside the church believe about us or about God or about the Bible or what have you. Sometimes these are things that we believe, either because it's passages we didn't understand, things taken out of context, bumper stickers we read too many times, too many trips into a certain Christian bookstore and we saw a Thomas Kincaid painting, whatever the case may be. But what we're doing is each week taking one of these and saying, here's the myth that's out there, but then going into the word and saying, but what do the scriptures actually teach? And is that true or are there nuances of truth that we need to understand well? And then trying to understand what is it, why is it that the truth is better for us? Because the truth is sometimes the things that we hold to, if they may not be true, but they sound better and they feel better. And so we might hold to them because we want to. But God's word, even things in God's word that might be uncomfortable to us, are always better for us. Amen, church? And God is constantly teaching us and wooing us towards joy and towards godliness. And so, so it's good for us to understand why the truth is better than whatever that myth happens to be. But that also means every once in a while we get our toes stepped on too, right? And so we've done a few of these so far, so we're going to start a new game. Like every time that I go through the list of the different things that we've talked about, when I say the myth, I want you to respond by saying false. Let's practice. Myth. That's weak. Myth. That's better because I don't want someone who checked out for just a second to see a sports score or something to check back in, only hear me say the myth, and then think we actually believe that. So it's important that we say false, right? Try it again. Myth. Okay, so here's what we have covered so far. So far we have covered a perfect home guarantees perfect kids. Right, very good. We have covered a valley means a wrong turn. Good, don't slack off on me. There's a little of Come on, stay strong. Uh, We've covered the Bible is incompatible with science. We have covered doing good means you will get good. And we have covered the Bible is unreliable. This one should be loud. Amen. So today we're going into a myth that's a little less about stepping on someone's toes and holding on to something that you genuinely believe, but it's definitely an important myth that we understand, not just for the church in general, but for our faith and our walk outside of the church. And that myth is this, as they've given it away already to us, ministry is better left to the professionals. Now, just a question mark. Oh, good. Well done. Well done. 
Okay, so just out of curiosity, raise your hand if you do or you have ever worked in the ministry. Raise your hand. Several hands up there. Good. Very, very good. Very, very good. Um, The idea is this, and I've heard this before many times, is that there's a difference between ministry jobs or the ministry, if we can. And for for the rest of the sermon, by the way, every time I say the ministry, just assume that I did this, but I don't want to keep doing this because it's kind of dorky. All right? The ministry. If you're listening on our podcast, Jeff did air italics. Okay, continuing on. Um, the ministry is one set of careers, so it sort of divides the, the world or our careers or our occupations or the things that we're about between two different categories. There's the ministry, and then there's real jobs. Everybody have a real job? Raise your hand. Yeah, some of you aren't raising your hand because you know I'm going to hammer this in a minute, and you want to just be like, I had this all from the beginning. Well done, I'd probably do the same thing. Um, and, and here's what happens. When people think that ministry is something that's done by the called, the professional, whatever you want to call it, and then there's the other jobs. You separate kind of calling and career, vocation, all that kind of stuff between ministry and spiritual or quote-unquote real jobs, secular, whatever you want to call it. Here's what kind of ends up happening. You start thinking that there's two different categories, and these are the things that God really cares about, and these are the things that God really isn't interested in, and you begin to segregate your lives in an unhealthy way. Now, I saw this myself because I came out of the engineering world before I ever became a pastor, and so people would say, and I would say, that I'm leaving my job and going into the ministry. Does that make sense? And that's what I would hear. And even growing up, I mean, I, used to, I grew up in the church, so I, I looked at it all the time. Like, there's the pastors and there's the missionaries. The pastors are important because we were at church on Sunday. Of course, I was a Baptist church in North Carolina, so we were in church on Sunday, on Wednesday night, on Sunday night. If it was revival, it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You guys don't know how good you got. But that's what we did. And, and so we had to obey the pastors, and they always taught us. And then we would do things like Lottie Moon Christmas offerings. I think it's Christmas offerings. Some of you guys remember stuff like that, like the missions stuff. And we would talk about missionaries, and we would pray for missionaries every week. So we started going, okay, the missionaries are really important because we're like praying for them special. So that's important. And the pastors are important, and the church stuff's important. But then we would look at it like, but then there's like my dad, who was a land surveyor at the time. Or then there's like my mom, who is a stay-at-home mom at the time, or whatever the case. And I, over time, even myself, began to sort of segregate the world around me. There were the spiritual jobs and the unspiritual jobs. And that leads to really unhealthy things. It, It leads to even things like there's spiritual time, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, Sunday night for sure. And then there's the unspiritual time, or not even that. It's not so much a negative, but there's just like normal work day. There's God's time, and there's our time. And this is what would happen. And, and it's not real healthy. And here's what was funny. People start looking at you a little different when you make that transition. Like, I saw that especially, because when I was just an engineer, I mean, somebody might ask me to pray for a meal or something like that, I guess. Maybe if it was hosted at my house, or maybe if we were with another couple out to dinner or something like that. But on average, you just whoever was there would just, hey, let's pray for the food. Once I became a pastor, it didn't matter what scenario I was in, didn't matter what the family gathering was, what group of people we were, when it came time to pray for the food, everybody would always be like, oh, let's pray for the food. Uh, Jeff, why don't you go ahead and pray for me? Because my prayers had extra special powers. Right? False. Well done. 
did my wife start that? <laughs> no, that's true. That, that's the way that people would start to look at it. And, and I know that it could be just a deference of respect or whatever, but is that healthy? Is that the best way to look at it? Um, Andy Stanley, some of you guys know who he is. He's a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia. Really, really, really big church. Church is so big, he couldn't possibly do hospital visits all the time or anything like that. So they have different people on church staff that would kind of oversee that, and they had elders, of course, in the church that would do a lot of that. Um, And he was talking about this idea of how pastors get moved into this area of the spiritually, like the, the professional spiritual people and separated from everyone else in some sort of a hierarchy. And he said, it's sort of weird that people would value my prayers over others. And he goes, actually, our church is at the size, if I show up at the hospital visit, people look at me and go, am I dying? Like, it must be really bad if Andy Stanley himself just showed up, am I dying? And it was really strange. But are my prayers any different than your prayers? False. But sometimes we would act that way, wouldn't we? Well, maybe not with me. You go, I know you, Jeff. But let's say someone else was here. Let's say it was a Billy Graham. Let's say it was some other giant of the faith that you've looked out to. Now, there is a place for respect and all those things. I get all of that. But is there a hierarchy? And that tends to be the way that we think about it. And I'll tell you, even now, now that I'm a pastor, people act really weird around me all the time. So I, I intentionally go out of my way um, regularly to make friends with people who are outside of the church world. I love you guys, but I need other things sometimes. You know what I'm saying? And so so I, I want to be able to stay in contact with people that don't know Jesus. It reminds me even when I'm preaching that there's people out there that, you know, you can't just talk about Jonah and expect that everybody knows the story. It's helpful for me. But anytime someone outside the church finds out I'm a pastor, they start getting all weird around me all the time to the point that I try not to even tell them. They start talking different. I mean, I've been around people who they'll be like dropping F-bombs and saying cuss words and all this kind of stuff. And inevitably, maybe around the river or something, the conversation comes around to, what do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? I remember one time, me and Dave Enright, he's an elder here at Heritage, we were playing cornhole together at this place with this guy that just happened to join in because we needed another person. Didn't know him at all. He didn't know us. And we're sitting there playing this game and conversations are happening. He's just saying words I couldn't even use the first letter for in this, in this setting right now. Just, just talking up a storm. Nice guy, but just, he's rough. He's not a Christian, so we expect that they would talk that way. It was fine, whatever. And so inevitably, the conversation came around to like, what do you do for a living? And I asked him, I actually brought it up, what do you do for a living? He was actually a security guard for a pot farm. That's what his job was. So he oversaw security for this huge pot farm, and he would like, when they would harvest it, he would like transport it to wherever it went, all this different kind of stuff. And so he's talking about all this kind of stuff, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be so awkward any minute now. (laughs) And so he asked Dave, and Dave's like, hey, I work for Statewide. We do like pavement work and all these different kind of things. And and then it's like, so what do you do? And I was like, I'm a pastor. And he's like, ah, and then like cussed in a way to say, I don't believe you. And Dave's like, no, really, really. And then dude got so weird the rest of the time. Like suddenly he was like super careful in everything he said. Like suddenly his behavior around me was like extra precarious and like lightning could come down at any minute because he was around a holy man. It's odd. So it's not just within the church, but outside the church. We view some areas as that's professional ministry and other areas as that's normal life. Now, we can only do so much to address how people out there feel. I want to talk mainly about how we as Christians view the ministry, 
all right? So that's what we're going to be talking about. So let's talk about this. The idea that ministry is done by the professionals, where does this myth come from? Um, It initially has Jewish roots in a lot of ways. In the Old Testament, God, as he gathers his people together, the nation of Israel, he takes one specific group of people, a tribe known as the what, church people? (laughs) Chicken. All of you are like, Levites? Levites. He takes the Levites and he says, okay, listen, I have a special job for you. Um, Out of all the other nations or all the other tribes, you are going to be my priests. And here's the role that I have for you. And it's a long story we don't have time to go into, but he gives them a specific job of being the priests for the entire nation of Israel. So they would work in the temple or in the synagogue or in the, the tabernacle. They would be the ones that are mediators between God and man. And they were the only ones, they were the only ones, it, it was, there was a definite hierarchy. You had like high priests and then you had other priests and all this kind of stuff. The priest was the only one who had direct access to God. The priest was the one who, if you had sinned and you needed forgiveness, you would bring your offerings to the priest and he would offer those offerings to God on your behalf. It wasn't something you did. So you didn't have that same kind of direct relationship with God that maybe we take for granted. There was someone in the middle that you had to go through. Your prayers, all that kind of, like he was the guy who mediated all of those things and the only one who had access in that particular way. Only the priest had direct access to God. But that filtered out of even the Jewish background. For some of us, this kind of mentality is actually rooted into the Catholic Church. Because even post-Christianity, once Christianity come into the mix, many of you guys know the Catholic Church kind of has that same sort of priestly hierarchy, right? I mean, the priest is the one that if you've sinned, you go to the priest and you make confession to the priest. He mediates between you and God. He's the one who tells you, here's how you reconcile yourself back to God. He alone can plead your case before God. And think about it. Your relationship with God is completely dependent on someone else being in the middle. The same is in the Jewish faith. It's not just what you do or don't do, but you need someone to act on your behalf in the in-between. And so this was the case. Um, And and even in, in biblical times... The hierarchy was really, really strict. I mean, it's not just that every single person within the tribe of Levi Levi became a priest. It was a very competitive hierarchical structure. Even by the time you get into Jesus' day, you have some who are rabbis and some who aren't, some who are priests and some who aren't. And there was this sort of, uh, it was almost like getting into the best school. As a kid would grow, he would memorize scripture, he would learn all these things, and rabbis would look at these kids who are wanting to be their disciples, who want to train under them, who want to be able to follow them to learn to do what they do. And only the best of the best of the best became rabbis. Only the elite with the proper background and the proper heritage became priests. And only they had direct access to God, not you. So you were always having to go through them. So it became really easy to have a mentality like there's the holy man and then there's the rest of us. In fact, even your offerings to him, when the priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year, his holiness was really important for your acceptance as well. Everything depended on this particular person here in between you and God. He was this mediator. 
And so this is kind of how it worked. And now a lot of that has now sort of slid into the church as well. And what happens is a lot of people end up sort of segmenting their life. So there are people not just within the Catholic church, but even within the Protestant church now that look at it like, I, this is the pastor, or this is the church. We tithe money maybe even into the church system to support and to make sure the ministry gets done. And those are the holy people who study the Bible and who teach the kids and who spread the gospel and they all do it so that I don't have to. And I go do like a real job, like go do some work, like build a house. And there's even like, like teasing that goes both ways. Like, oh, you pastors, you don't know how to bang a nail. You don't know how to fix your car. You don't, you know, all this kind of stuff. Like there's this tension that comes between that that's real that I've seen within every church I've ever been a part of, including this one. A separation between pastors, elders, and the holy people and kind of the rest of us, if you will. So is that what the Bible actually teaches Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2. It says this, So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So look at this particular text right here. Here's what he says. Now let's, let's remember the context. Who's this letter written to? It's not written to a pastor. You have to understand that. It's written to a church. So if we were the original recipients of this letter that Peter is writing, he didn't address this letter by saying, Dear Jeff and the Heritage Pastoral Staff. He said, To the church at Heritage Christian Fellowship. Do you understand? And that's an important distinction. This text isn't just talking to the holy people. It's talking to all the people. In other words, repeat after me, you would say, this is for me. Oh, come on, people. Let's try this again. This is for me. Now look at the guy next to you and say, this is for you. Okay, so this is who he's writing to. And right away, he says something important. He says, okay, first of all, church, one of the things we have to do is grow up. That's what he says. He says, look, we don't just stay having tasted that God is good and become, we, we've, we've understood the gospel, we know who Jesus is, and in, in chapter one, he declares beautifully what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And so he's like, listen, church, knowing now that Jesus died for your sins, knowing now that Jesus came and did what you could never do, knowing now that Jesus has saved you and brought you into this glorious family and now created this thing called the church, knowing what God has done for you, you put that old stuff away slander, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, all that stuff goes away. And now we are to grow up. So that means first and foremost, regardless of hierarchies, who's spiritual, who's not, who's a pastor, who's not, everyone in the church is called to grow up. There's not to be 30-year-old babies in the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? And I, I know that we naturally hate that because many of us look at, for example, the failure in many cases of young people to grow up. They're just couch surfing into their late 20s and 30s playing video games, that kind of stuff. We would look upon that with disdain. But God calls us to the same sort of mentality within the church. He says, hey, you're not to stay in the elemental things, coloring outside the lines, playing video games, whatever it is. At some point, no matter who you are in the church, he's saying, hey, so let's grow. Let's invest. Let's learn. Let's study. 
It's not that the study and growth is only for the holy people. It's for everyone. Amen, church? So that's the foundation first and foremost is that our spirituality is not abdicated to someone else. Like we all are called to grow, right? And you go, yeah, but that's different than being in the ministry, quote unquote. I did it again. Okay, let's continue. 1 Peter 2 verse 4 says what? As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now remember, their mentality and their history was, there's these guys over here who are the priests that they offer the sacrifices and they do all this other stuff. We kind of go through them and then we go about our normal jobs. But that's not what he actually says right here. He actually says, now you church are being molded into this spiritual house, this this living embodiment of the temple, he might say. And he says, and you're being created into a holy priesthood who offers acceptable sacrifices to God. Suddenly, the job description that had always been held out here for someone else is, in a very real way, applied to them. And he goes on, he says in verse 9, but you yourselves are a chosen race, now, actually, let's read up to that, verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am in laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Church, who's the him he's talking about? His name starts with a J, ends with a Jesus. One, two, three. Jesus. This is who he's talking about. Now, he says, the cornerstone, the foundation of everything that I'm doing is built on Jesus. And he says, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who don't believe, that stone the builders rejected has become a cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you, he's talking to you, amen? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I want you to think about what he says here. You're a royal priesthood, a royal nation. Now before, it was God's chosen nation, but one segment of which is now the priesthood. But now in Jesus, the people of God are the church. And he says, of all the people of the church, you are one holy nation, and everyone within that is a royal priesthood, he says. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are called to be priests. That's what he starts calling us. Now, it's easy for us because that sounds like churchy language to go, uh, priest, whatever. But in that context, you have to understand, they've never seen anything like this. The priests were the holy ones that everyone looked up to. If you had asked anyone in Jesus' day, who are the spiritual people around here? They would point to the priests. There was like a genuine hierarchy, and the priests loved it, let me tell you. Like they walked around, head up, looking down on everyone. That hierarchy was very clear. You read through the Gospels, you see Jesus hammering away at that. But then because of the sacrifice of Jesus, this change happens, and suddenly he looks at all the people instead of them and says, now you are my priests. 
You are the ones that will offer sacrifices that are acceptable to God. You are the ones that will now proclaim the excellencies of God. You are my chosen nation, my holy priesthood. You now are the mediators between. You now are the ones that are reconciling people back to me. You now are my representatives, no matter what they do. Now let's think about this for just a second. Who are the people that Jesus is talking to? You may not realize this, there were zero seminaries in place at that point. Did you know that? None. No seminaries. So who are the professionals he could clearly be talking about here? Because he can't just be talking to everybody, right? Let's consider this for a second. Check, check out this text. This is in Matthew chapter 5. Everybody knows this text pretty well. If you've grown up in church at all, you've heard this. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says this. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." Now, most of you, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've, you know this passage, you've heard this passage from the Sermon on the Mount. And we know, and I'm going to be really, really brief in this just for the sake of time, but what Jesus is saying here is, hey, salt, salt adds flavor and it's a preservative and you are like the salt to the rest of the world. In a world that's dying and decaying and fallen and broken, you are a preservative that brings life and, and restores, like sustains. It brings life to a world that never had it. You're a light to the world. In a world in darkness and in brokenness, you are the ones that know the truth and can lead people to life. You're like a city on a hill at nighttime, and people lost in the darkness, wandering around, can see that city, and nothing can take that away. They know that they can find life or help or community or whatever there because the light is available to all of them. And of course, we know what he's talking about, right? He's talking about the gospel. He's saying, look, you know the kingdom of God. You know the truth. You know who I am. And you now are the people that will preserve, if you will, life on earth, that will be light to people in darkness because you will be the ones that will be proclaiming the excellencies, as Peter might put it, of who? Of Jesus. You're the ones that will be the light stand. Now think about this, guys. Who is he teaching? He's in Galilee. I don't know if you remember from our Luke series, but Galilee, long way from Jerusalem where the temple is, that's where all the professionals would be. He's outside a fishing village on a hill on the side of a lake with a bunch of people gathered together to hear him. He's with people who never made the cut to be rabbis. He's with people who never made the cut to go into the ministry. He's with fishermen. He's with farmers. He's with stay-at-home moms. He's with those kind of people on a hillside, and he's saying, you're my people. You're my ministry. You're my ministers. You're the light, not the people in the temple. You're the salt, not the priest who's going and offering sacrifices. He's talking to people that you might say would never be even considered for the ministry at that time. And he says, you're the people that I'm going to use. Just average people. I mean, just think even of the disciples that he chose. Who are the people that he chose? He didn't go to the local seminary and say, who's your uh, valedictorian? I want that guy. I mean, he chose fishermen, 
tax collectors. He, told, he chose average day-to-day people that were out about work in a quote-unquote real job. Not doing quote-unquote spiritual work, people working a job. He said, you, follow me. You, follow me. Hey, you, you're a fisherman, that's your real job? Yeah, but I'm going to make you fishers of men. You, follow me. And he chose people from everyday normal acts of life, walks of life. That's who he chose. Now, I talked about the roots of this. There's the Jewish roots with the people, the priesthood. There's the Catholic roots with the priesthood. Now, we are part of the Protestant church movement historically, our our denomination and others like us are, who came out of what's known as the Reformation. I don't have time for all that history lesson, and it would get really boring for many of you anyway, but... In the Reformation, men like Martin Luther led the Protestant movement away from the Catholic Church. There were a lot of different things that they felt that the Catholic Church was doing wrong that were not in accordance with Scripture. And they were saying, this is not okay, this is not what God called us to do, and things need to change. And of the many things that they talked about, the many things that were argued about and even blood shed over, the three biggest deals that the Reformation movement and men like Martin Luther and others who led us away from the Catholic Church, there were three things in particular, the top three things, if you will, on their list of things that they were saying, it cannot be like this anymore. Uh, One of them, number one, was sola scriptura is what it's referred to. It's the idea of scripture alone. And this is what they meant. Authority comes from God and his word, not from some hierarchical uh, uh, structure of priests. That God's word is the ultimate authority, not necessarily what some other guy says. Scripture alone, which absolutely feeds into what we're talking about here today. The second thing is called sola fide. It was the idea that we are saved by faith alone. Our salvation does not Uh, depend on the penances we pay, the works that we do, how many times we went to confession, any of those other things. Our salvation is not dependent on the guy that's in the middle because Jesus is the guy that was in the middle that has reconciled us to God. Jesus is the one that did the work and our salvation is dependent on faith alone. Amen, church? And the third one was this. It was the priesthood of believers. Uh, Martin Luther himself actually believed that in the church, even though they were moving out of the priesthood, he believed that within the church, the word priest should be as common and normal to all of us as the word Christian, but not in the way that it had been used before. Martin Luther believed strongly in the biblical concept of the priesthood of all believers, and this is what he taught literally. He said, the priesthood is not to be a vocation. In the sense that the guy who went to seminary now is more spiritual, but the guy who bangs nails or the farmer who milks a cow is not. He said, no, actually, everything we do should fall under the category of spiritual. And there should be no more segmenting between a real job and a spiritual job or the spiritual and the secular. He said, no, everything is spiritual. Everything is an act of worship to God. Everything is a sacrifice to God. And he believed that our faith gave us purpose no matter what it was we were doing on a given day. He would look at the attitude of many Christians today who go, well, Sunday is church time, Monday is my time. And he would go, what are you talking about? You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. How how do you segment life like that? And he was calling us out of that mentality that had been fostered by the Catholic Church and even by the Jewish Church before that to say that is not what Jesus has done. 
We are now all priests. We are part of a royal priesthood. And he believed that if the church made ministry the higher calling, we would lose our relevance everywhere else. Because the rest of the world would say, well, all that stuff matters in ministry. Yeah, but I'm not in ministry. I'm fixing cars. And so God doesn't apply over here. But a lot of us feel that way. We might not even say it, but we might think that way or even posture ourselves that way in our everyday life. So, Jeff, whatever, what's the point? What does all this mean to you? I have a few points that I want to make for you, and then we'll be done. The first one is this. Let's think about what is the role of the priesthood in general, both biblically and what it looks like today. And the first thing is this, the priesthood of believers. What did the priests have, both in the Catholic Church, as people believe, but also in the Jewish Church in the Old Testament? The priests were the ones who had direct access to God. Nobody else could really approach God in the way that the priests did. They might be even God's people, but they didn't have access to God in the same way. They had to go through someone else. Well, what do the scriptures teach us? Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. This is Paul writing, kind of a big deal in the church world, amen? And a former rabbi himself, a, a, a Pharisee himself, who is used to hierarchical structures and was proud of it. But now he says in Ephesians, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, grace was given. Like that's that's completely the opposite of anything he would have lived before he got saved. He says, no, 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 I'm not like the top like I used to think. He's even considering himself the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities and in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Here's what the priesthood of believers means. There's no holy man syndrome there's no, man, I'd really like to talk to God. I hope I can get, to get, get a hold of Jeff today. He's probably on a lake. Like, there's none of that. The priesthood of believers guarantees that you have absolute access to God, but actually in a much more sure way than ever existed before. It's not about, did I give the right sacrifice, though? Did I go through all the steps right? Did I do everything perfectly? Because if I didn't and I try to go before God, I'm going to drop dead. That's the way it was. But now because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ already, he has already made the acceptable sacrifice. He's done everything perfectly. His sacrifice is absolutely accepted before God. And so because of all that, we now have unlimited, unrestricted, free access to God in a way no one pre-Jesus ever had in the history of the world. That's a big deal, church. Amen? It's a big, it means your prayers are just as fervent as mine. It means your prayers are just as, a, like, my prayers or some pastor's prayers don't have, like, extra turbo power. You have access to God on a completely equal plane, not because of who we are or what title we carry or what we do for a living, but because Jesus Christ has mediated and reconciled you to God. And you have access to God. That's a big deal that we take for granted. Don't you think, church? You have access to God. Huge deal. Number two, what else do priests do? Priests offer sacrifices. That's what priests do. 
Well, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, we see that we are called to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're called to do the same thing. But what does that look like? I mean, should we all start building altars at home and raising goats in our backyard so people can come and butcher them and we start like everybody's barbecuing meat on sacrifice? No, Hebrews tells us there is no longer need for any more sacrifices. Blood sacrifices are not needed anymore because there was one full, eternal, effectual sacrifice for sins. It's the purpose in the person of Jesus Christ. So there is no more needed a sacrifice for sin. It's already been done. You go, okay, well, that seems to be an error in the Bible then because he's saying we still offer sacrifices. What does that look like? Check it out, Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, there's a couple of really important things you've got to understand here. Number one, we're not called to offer a, a, an animal, a goat, or whatever. The sacrifice that we're called to offer is us, laying our life down for God and for his eternal purposes, saying, Lord, you are, I am yours, you are mine, you have bought me, you have paid the price, you are my Lord and my King, so I am at your service. And he even says, that's reasonable. That's reasonable. God himself died for your sins to reconcile you to him. That's reasonable that you would then, before the Lord of all creation, say, I am here at your service. Amen? But the other thing to notice is, it's not a sacrifice given so that we have access to God. It's a sacrifice that's given out of what? Your spiritual worship. It's an understanding of the reality in the gospel of God that says, he gave his life for me. How can I not but give my life for him just as an act of worship? I don't need to appease him. I don't need to do things to manipulate him to get his favor. I've received it all. I just, in response to his grace and his gospel, say, Lord, I am yours. That's the sacrifice. No need to build altars. We are the living sacrifice. Amen, church? Number three is this. Priests live prophetically. In 1 Peter 2, 9, right here in our text, it says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's a, a proclamation part of this. And this is where some of you go, whoa, hold on. You're not talking about preaching, are you? Yes. Everyone here is a preacher. All of you. Now, it doesn't mean you have to stand up here with a microphone in front of a few hundred people. It might be one-on-one. -on -one. It might be through your actions as well as your words. Whatever the case may be, we are all called to declare the gospel. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5. When he talks about being a light to the world, a city on a hill, the salt of the earth. Our job is to now proclaim the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ to a world that is dying and lost in darkness and decaying without him. That's what we do, which means we should know it. That's part of the whole, hey, grow up. Don't stay with just milk. Keep growing. Keep learning. But there's a little side note here that I should mention. This idea here, this is where it gets people in a little bit of trouble because they start to go, Okay, but look, I didn't go to seminary like you did, Jeff. I, I don't have the time to study and all those kind of things. I don't, I don't know, and I don't know enough to be able to do that. But let me encourage you. We have more resources at our disposal now 
than the early church could have ever even dreamed of. I mean, remember, when Peter wrote this letter, like, they didn't have their Bible yet, you know what I mean? Like, they didn't have all of that. They didn't have uh, podcasts they could listen to. Everybody wasn't walking around with their Bible. There were no Gideon's Bibles in hotel rooms. There was none of that stuff. But they had the Holy Spirit. They knew what the gospel was, and they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And those people who were a bunch of, in the world's eyes, a bunch of nobodies, changed the world. So look what we have. How much more could we accomplish if we took advantage of the actual resources we do have? So don't wait. I'm giving away an early, a later point. We'll get to that in just a minute. Let's just move on. So we live prophetically. The royal priesthood means we preach the gospel in everything that we do. And the number four is this. Priests were agents of reconciliation. There's this text here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is what he says. Jesus didn't save you just to get you into heaven. Jesus saved you that you might participate in his mission of saving more and more and more people. It's like freeze tag. You guys remember freeze tag growing up? I mean, those of you who are now in our generation, or I mean, the new generation doesn't play outside anymore, I don't think. But like in our generation, remember we did? Remember freeze tag? If they tagged you, you were frozen, and their job was to try to tag everybody and freeze them. But if you were free, you could run around and tag a frozen person, and they were set free. Remember? But if you got tagged, now you're free, what was your job? Tag all the other frozen people and set other people free. You didn't just go run off the hill. Well, there was always that one kid that just like ran down the street and hid. We all hated that kid. Like that was not the one that we wanted playing the games anyone. He ruined everything. That's not what we're called to do. We have been saved that we might participate in God's ongoing act of saving more and more and more people. Amen? This is what we've been called to. We are ministers of reconciliation. All of us, remember, he's writing to a church. Paul is too when he writes this, and he calls everyone who would have heard that letter, you are ministers. It's not a job title. It's a responsibility given by God to all who are saved to be ministers of reconciliation. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, some of you are thinking, there's only six minutes left. Are you going to end on time this week, Jeff? And the answer is yes. But also, some of you are thinking, yeah, but that doesn't sound better to me. That sounds like more work. I don't know how to do this, and so I'm not sure why you think this is better than the myth that was there before. I'd rather just let the pastors do all the work. I'd rather let the missionaries do all the work. I don't want all that. It sounds like a lot of work to me. Here's why this is better. Number one, listen, this gets rid of the holy man myth, which is important. This gets rid of the holy man myth. there, let me just say it this way, and some of you can aim into this, and if you do it loud, you're going to hurt my feelings, but the truth is, there's nothing special about me. It's true. Like, I, there's not. Like, the fact that people would, like, why is my prayer any different? The truth is, it's not. And neither is Andy Stanley's or Billy Graham's or anyone. There's nothing inherently special about us. We're certainly not supposed to do it that way. The idea is supposed to be that we are pointing to the one who is special, and that's Jesus. None of the attention should go to us. Now, you go, then why, why are you being paid? 
okay, fair point. <laughs> but in reality, in our context, and also in Paul's context, and he has much to say about this too, there is a place where there, there's a purchasing of my time or of others' time for the purpose of training people in the church for ministry. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 11. He says this, And he gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of the church. What he doesn't say is, he gave you guys pastors to do all the ministry work, so just make sure you support them, and then you guys go do real jobs. They're all real jobs. But what he's saying is, those in, if you will, if we can use it in our context, pastors or whatever, are, our function is actually to train and equip you guys. And then also earlier or later on in First Peter, he talks about the fact that the pastor or the shepherd's job is to also look after and take care of the people of God. That's all. But here's the thing, and I love to talk about this. This is crazy, but I, I genuinely believe this with all my heart. The mentality and the belief that one day when we're in heaven and there's the new heaven and the new earth and all that kind of stuff in eternity, the thing we're always longing for, um, everybody, we have that sort of mentality that we just sort of float around on clouds or we sing all day or we have pool parties and mansions or whatever it is that we have. But, but the reality is, and I hate to break your, your hopes in this, but we're going to have jobs it's going to be life. There's going to be societies and all these things. Now, they're going to be fulfilling in a way you can't ever imagine. It's going to be a joy. But I'm going to be unemployed because my job as a pastor is to interpret Scripture and to point people to Jesus. And so what is that going to look like when Jesus is actually here? He's pretty much going to say to all of us, hey, Jeff, could you just get out of the way? I'm actually here now. I genuinely believe that. I don't know what it's going to look like for me in the kingdom of heaven. I have no idea. But there'll still be engineers. There'll still be people actually banging nails and doing all those kinds of things, building. God is a builder. The Bible starts in a garden and ends in a city. There's going to be life. And so this idea of like the holy men or the special ones, man, I'm going to be begging you guys for work in the kingdom of heaven. And when that time comes, just remember, I was nice to most of you. Number two, the, the truth is better because it gives us purpose. It gives everyone purpose. Um, and I, I want to do this. Can we redefine ministry? Because right now ministry for us is like pastors, elders, that kind of a thing. But Paul Tripp has a wonderful definition for ministry that I think is a way better one. And it's this. I put it up here so you can write it down. All of you write it down. <laughs> ministry is a heartfelt willingness to respond to the spiritual need that God puts in your path anytime, any place. That's the ministry. A heartfelt willingness to respond to the spiritual need that God puts in your path anytime, any place. It's not about a job. It's not about a career. It's about a calling to be used by God in different areas, whatever God leads our way. That means everything is ministry. Marriage is ministry. Parenting is ministry. Our work is ministry. Hobbies are ministry. We are always voluntarily and willingly inserting ourselves into the lives of people all around us to be used by God to deal with spiritual needs as they come our way. Everything's spiritual. And this gives everything purpose. No matter what you're doing for a living, you're in the ministry. You, you have access to people that pastors will never get to. You have access, and it's not just like, oh, so we do these things because then we have to preach the God. It's not just on a, on a, I need to make sure that I'm inviting those people to church. It's every single day meeting needs. 
When you're building things, you're, you're bringing order to a world that's falling apart. And in doing that, you're pointing to the kingdom of God when everything's going to be restored. If you work for ODF and you're out there like working in the fields and on the rivers or you're working in the mountains or whatever, even in that, you're showing people, hey, there is a care, there's structure, there's thing. this is what the kingdom of God is going to look like one day. As you're feeding the hungry, whatever it is you're doing, you have the opportunity to point to a kingdom to come because you're a minister of that kingdom and you're a priest in this kingdom now. So everything that you do has purpose. Number three, here's why it's better to know this as the, know the truth as opposed to the myth, and this is important. I'm sorry it's heavy, but it's true. We will be judged on our faithfulness to his calling. Uh, very few places when you go through like the ideas of judgment and rewards and all this stuff in heaven one day when we stand before God in purpose, in, in, excuse me, in person, very little of that is like, um, and so have you been a good boy? You know what I mean? Like, did you do this and do this and do this and not do this and not do this in terms of like morality, like spiritual? Most of it talks about the fact that we are actually held responsible for what God has given us and have we been faithful ministers of those very things. That's what we'll be rewarded by. That's the thing that we've been called to do. And so one day we'll stand before God and he'll talk about the talents, the treasures, the things he's given us and he's going to know what did, he's going to want to ask, what did you do with those things? And we all want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen? So it's important that we know that. And then the last thing is just this. Um, verse, or number four on this list. Guys, it's an honor to serve the king. It's an honor to serve the king. Out of all that he's done and who he is, his brilliance, his majesty, his greatness, it's an honor to serve him. It's an honor to have access to him. It's an honor to be able to worship him and point other people to him. Like we should want to do this, not looking at this as something that we have to do. Amen? So I have some challenges for you, and I really want you to write these things down, okay? I have some challenges for you to think about even as we respond in worship and throughout the rest of the week. I dare you, Heritage, to take me up on this. Like I dare you. And those of you that do, I want to hear how it went. I want to hear, like, email us. Let us know if things came your way that surprised you, okay? So here's my challenge. Here's the dare. Number one, I want you to purposefully seek out God's calling for you and the giftings that he has. Like, I want you to purposely make it a point to know what God has called you to do. What has he gifted you to do? Where has he placed you in life? Who are the people around you? What are the opportunities that he's put you there? And maybe even uniquely you in a way that Pastor Jeff would never be able to pull off. I mean like you, a priest in the kingdom of God. What has he called you to do in your life right now? And I don't mean, well, I could be a teacher. I guess I could quit my mechanic job and go into ministry. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about where God has you. What is your role there? Number two. I want you to be involved with your church body. And this is not guilt trip, go serve in the children's ministry or in the setup crew or whatever the case may be, though we should do that. But part of what we do in serving one another is like the, the word tells us, we're being fit together, we're being molded together. And the body of Christ, and this is a whole nother long sermon that I don't have time to, and I've already hit zero on the clock, so I have to hurry. But we need everyone involved in the church. We don't need a bunch of Jeffs. 
We need people in all sorts of different walks of life with all sorts of different giftings. The church needs that because that's how we sharpen one another. That's how we grow together. That's how we learn. Like just this week, having come out of a sermon a few weeks ago that we talked about things like depression, remember when West Town was here and all that kind of stuff? Um, there's a guy that's part of our church. He did, I didn't tell him I was going to do this. He, I think he's actually here today. I'm going to say it anyway. A guy named Josh came by this week and spent some time with us. He actually w- has worked with DHS and all this kind of stuff, and he's been trained in dealing with suicide prevention. So he got a hold of us and said, hey, uh, I can do this kind of training. Do you guys want it? We were like, yeah, we want it. So he came to our church office this week, sat down with our whole staff and started walking through, hey, here's what to look for with suicide. Here's what to do with all these things. Like we can't make that up on our own. Like our church got better this week because someone in the church said, I mean, I kind of have something. Could you use it? Like that was a gift. So be involved in the church. But number three, I don't want you to just look at ministry as on Sundays. Here's, this is huge. Remember this one, even if you're not writing it down and you're disobeying me right now. Start every single day by saying, okay, God, here I am, send me. What will you put in front of me today? God, I'm here. I'm a priest in your kingdom. I'm in a place that other people aren't. What can I do? And see what happens. I can't wait to do the book of Acts as we talk about how the Spirit of God empowers that. We don't have time to even go down that road. But man, trusting the Spirit of God and being willing to step out into things like that. Man, you avail yourself to God. Watch and see what he'll do. And the last one is this, and I mean this sincerely. Do not wait on the church. I've had people go, man, what the church needs is this. What the church needs is this. I've had people come to me angry before saying, why doesn't our church have this? And I'm like, apparently we do. You're called to do it. Good luck. <laughs> but th- this is what I mean. It's not, it can come off that way, but it's, it's, it's not me going, I don't have time for what you're called to. What it is, is you being freed to go be the church out there. And I think too often, even in things like mercy ministries or feeding the hungry or things like that, we wait for the church to organize these big events so that we can serve in them instead of being willing on our own as priests to step into the fray on our own. And when you do that, do you see what happens there? You're waiting on the professionals to put together the ministry for you. You don't have to do that. Go. Be the church. You're like, but I'm not equipped. I'm not trained. I don't know what to do that is our job, then let's talk. Let's get coffee. Let's talk about where you are. Let's talk about your giftings. Let's talk about resources to sharpen them. But don't wait on the professional to put things together for you. You have the Spirit of God and the Word of God, and you have more available to you today than the early church ever even dreamed of, and they changed the world. So can you, Heritage. So can you. Amen? At this time, guys, we're going to pray and we're going to enter into a time of reflection and worship. Um, The way that we do that in responding to the Word of God is multifaceted. It's just depending on where you're at or what we're doing. Some of us, we give to the Lord. We give in response, not just to support the work of the ministry and ongoing ministry out there, um, but also in response to God and what He's given us. Um, We do work before God. Like you've heard these things and it's so easy to hear a sermon and go, yeah, 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 I should do that. And then you go to lunch and then the ball game comes on or you play golf or whatever. And the next thing you know, it's a day later and you've forgotten about all of it. Man, take an opportunity right now. Don't leave early. Like take an opportunity to say, Lord, here am I. Send me. 
Who do you have around me? What do I, I have access to you, God, so I'm speaking to you. What do you call us to do? And then the other thing that we do is we worship. When we realize the privilege of not just being saved by God, but called into his mission, what a gift that is. What a privilege that is to be able to serve God. And so in worship, it's not just weird singing of songs. We are, as the text actually calls us to do, we are declaring the excellencies of him who saved us. So worship, men, lift your hands and your voices. Women, all of you, sing and worship a God who has saved you. And then, this is the huddle, in the end, ready, break, and we go and be used by God for the kingdom of God in the world around us. Amen? So Lord, we just bow before you right now and we ask, Lord, that you would have your way with us. Will you speak to us, Lord? Will you, will you um, awaken affections? Will you confirm or reveal callings? But Lord, may you awaken your church for this beautiful mission. May you grow us, Lord, into that royal priesthood. And I pray, God, that the attention would not go to heritage or to us, but Lord, may people around us see how amazing you are. We give this time to you, Lord. May you speak to your people in Jesus' name. Amen. This time the brothers are going to come forward and receive this morning's tithes and offerings. And then as the basket comes by, man, stand and sing, worship, kneel, do business with God. Take advantage of these few minutes. We don't get them as often as we'd like in this world. Amen. Darkness, you give hope, you restore.